This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to today's show. Before we get started with another great episode of Finding Freedom here on Lines of Liberty, I want to talk to you about a new app that I've been uh, playing around with and using to uh, to network with like-minded people. It's called the Nomad Network. If you know Jason Stapleton, Wealth Powering Influence Podcast, he's been a guest on, uh, on Mark's show and Brian's show. Obviously, one thing he talks about is entrepreneurship and controlling the source of your income. If you know me, that is something I am passionate about as well, Getting mul- developing multiple streams of income what the Nomad Network is, it's a it's community of, of people just like you, uh, liberty-minded people, people who uh, want to create freedom, who want to take control of their life, who want to focus on entrepreneurship and investment, um, looking for side hustles, uh, looking for things like that. You can join for free by going to www.nomadnetwork.app slash lion. And you know, it doesn't matter if you're already a business owner, if you have multiple businesses, if you just are thinking about taking the first steps to start that business, great place to find motivation, to meet like-minded people, maybe to uh, run across some people who can do different things for you, to help you out, web development, uh, Facebook advertising, things of that nature. There's a job posting board. You can join for free. Just go to www.nomadnetwork.com dot app slash lion and check it out today we are born free and we will die free the time in between though that's complicated in that time governments institutions and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life these are real stories of real people overcoming the odds persevering injustice and unlocking their potential Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. All right, we are live. I'm here with my guest today on Finding Freedom, Seth Ferranti. Seth is a filmmaker. He's a novelist, a comic book creator, journalist, and a former federal prisoner. Uh, before going to prison, Seth spent two years as a fugitive he was on the uh, the top 15, the U.S. Marshals' top 15 most wanted list. Uh, he spent 21 years in prison, all told. He was, uh, after after being convicted, as an LSD kingpin. Um, while he was in prison, worked on his writing and uh, developed that craft. Since then, he's written for tons of uh, mainstream magazines and uh, notable pieces. Uh, but most notably is his documentary, which I just watched on Netflix, White Boy, which is which is awesome. Um, some of you might be familiar with the the movie, uh, White Boy Rick, based on the uh, the life of uh, Richard Worshi Jr. So, uh, Seth, welcome to Finding Freedom. Hey, what's up, John? Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, man. Thanks Thanks for coming on the show. Um, I, I think we have some, some mutual connections on on facebook uh some people that have been on my show in the past uh amy pova and uh and, and people from that crew a lot of people who amy's helped get uh get out of prison um but 
you know, your, your story, you've gone from, you know, really the bottom, uh, dealing drugs, getting convicted, being a fugitive, going through the system and coming out on the other side and producing this awesome documentary among many other things. So, I mean, I think this is a great story to tell, to share, not just for people who, you know, are facing something like that, but people just going through the, especially in these crazy times, just going through the, uh, you know, the, the drags of, of regular life and, uh, and seeing that you can change your life and you can improve and you can evolve over time. So we're looking forward to, to, uh, speaking with you today. And I want to start really at the beginning. Um, you know, when you were a teenager selling drugs, if you can kind of start by sharing, you know, what your situation was like, um, back then where you grew up and how you got involved in the drug trade. Um, yeah, first off, I want to say, uh, I'm glad you said Amy. I love Amy, beautiful person, what she does with the, the, the can do foundation. I mean, she's just a, a wonderful soul, man. So how she tries to help all these people. So that's awesome that you had her on. She's a very good friend of mine. And, um, yeah, back to me, man, you know, I kind of, at 13, man, I just kind of took like a, a left turn in life. You know, up, up until that point, I, w- I was kind of like, you know, the all-American kid, you know, on a roll, played sports. And then, um, yeah, at 13, I, 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 I kind of dove headfirst in, into drugs, you know, just first with cannabis and, and alcohol and then, you know, experimenting with, with hallucinogens, you know, like mushrooms, LSD, and then getting into like what I would call harder drugs, like, like meth and, uh, cocaine. And yeah, man, I just, I just kind of dove in, man. And I mean, it, it wasn't pretty, I don't know. I I was seemed like I was searching for something, you know, I, I still think about it a lot today. And I, I, I've done a lot of introspection, you know, throughout the 21 years that I was in prison and, um, yeah, I'm just, I, I really had identity crisis. I really wasn't sure who I was. Uh, you know, I wasn't happy with who I was and I kind of used drugs to kind of escape, you know, reality. And, you know, I took it even further. I I was just very self-destructive, you know, and, and, and I got myself on this path, uh, doing drugs and, and eventually selling drugs, you know, that, that led to a 25 year sentence, um, in the federal system as a first time nonviolent offender. But, you know, I think really I started selling drugs because, you know, I I was taking drugs. So when I was taking drugs, I, I found out pretty quick that, you know, like if you get drugs for other people, then you get free drugs. So, that's that's kind of where it started for me, and then, you know, after after a couple of years of doing that, I, I was, you know, kind of like in the position where I knew suppliers and I knew a lot of people, you know, that wanted to buy it. So I figured out, you know, by the time I was like fifteen or sixteen, I figured out like, hey, man, not only can I get free drugs, but you know, I I can make money doing this, you know, mm-hmm. and I I can make good money, and so that's kind of how it all transpired for me. And I kind of went for, you know, probably like 13 to 17. I, w- I was really just kind of like doing whatever drug I could find and, and just kind of like uh, abusing them and really kind of, you know, destroying myself in, in a certain regard. And then around 17, you know, it kind of clicked for me, you know, that, uh, you know, I should do this as a business. 
And really when I decided that I, I really, you know, I didn't stop doing drugs, but I stopped doing the harder drugs, you know, what I would call harder drugs and, mm -hmm. and just kind of, uh, you know, stuck to like weed and, and alcohol and, and hallucinogen. And, and I got away from like, you know, what I would say are the more, uh, you know, addictive drugs like cocaine and meth, you know, at least yeah. in my view. And I, I really kind of stopped doing those and, um, yeah, just concentrated on selling and, and even, you know, that I, I sold weed and psychedelics. So, um, I always tell people I'd never consider myself a criminal. You know, I, I never carried a gun. You know, I didn't have a criminal organization. You know, I wasn't a gang leader. You know, I wasn't in the mafia, you know, nothing like that. You know, I was just, I was just a kid, you know, I sold weed and, and LSD and mushrooms at colleges, you know, and I just had, a, I had a lot of good connects. So I always tell people, you know, I, I wasn't a criminal. I was an outlaw. I broke laws that I thought were wrong. And really now, I mean, 30 something years later, I feel kind of justified, you know, with the way the world is now with legal weed and, uh, you know, psychedelics being looked at, you know, for a variety of uses in, in the medical and therapeutic field. So, you know, but, but at that time, I mean, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm man enough to admit that, you know, I, I was, I was breaking the law, you know, and I had to pay the price. I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, Undoubtedly, I didn't want to, you know, do 21 years of my life in prison, but you know, that's what happened. So that's what I had to do. Well, it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. You're talking about how far we've kind of evolved as a society here and you were, I guess you were dealing in the, what the early nineties, is that what it was? Mostly late eighties. Yeah. My case late was 80s. 90, my case was 91. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, yeah, th things have changed dramatically and it's crazy to think you know, when you became a fugitive, that someone, a drug dealer, a nonviolent offender, someone is on the, the top 15 most wanted list. But that's that was the, the mentality back then, right? So take us through through that. I mean, how did, how did you becoming a fugitive happen? Is it something that just one day you decided, I, I got to run? Or you, did you put a lot of thought into it? Um, how, how'd that come about? No, I put, I put a lot of thought into it. So, you know, first I, I had a state case. Some people got in trouble in the state and, uh, you know, they, they, they set me up. They actually tried to set me up. They did a sting. The, the, the sting wasn't even completed because I wouldn't make a deal with a, uh, you know, with a, um, narcotics officer. They were trying to get me to make a deal and I refused to make a deal with them. So then after that, but I still got arrested and I got charged on the state. And then they, they moved the case federal, you know, because, uh, you know, this is 91, summer 91, you know, it's like right when the war on drugs was kind of kicking into gear. So they moved my case federal as soon as they found out, you know, that the LSD I was getting was being shipped from uh, San Francisco. So, you know, right, right from the jump, you know, I, I kind of had, you know, m my wheels were spinning because I was like, man. I was like, I, I didn't like, you know, what my lawyer was telling me. I had a state lawyer, then I had to get a federal lawyer. And they were telling me, like, I'm looking at like 20 to life. And I'm like, 20 to life? You know, I'm like, for, for what? You know, I was like, I was like 20 years old, you know? And, and, and you know, I'm not to say, I mean, not, not to say, I mean, I, I wasn't like a little small time re, re, retail dealer. I mean, I was a wholesaler. I used to wholesale at colleges. You know, I would get like 100 pounds of weed at a time and I would get like 10,000 hits of acid at a time. And I would distribute at like 15 colleges in five states on the East Coast. So, I mean, it, 
in no ways if I, am I trying to say that I was, you know, a small dealer, mm-hmm. but you know, in, in the same regard, I mean, I wasn't Pablo Escobar. I wasn't John Gotti. I wasn't this big, huge drug dealer making millions of dollars, you know, for, for a teenager, for a 20 year old. Yeah. I, I was, you know, I was doing pretty good. You know, I, I was probably at, at times I was probably making like profiting, you know, 20, 25 grand a month, you know, but, um, Still, I, I had like a little run, man, you know, um, like 17, I kind of got serious about selling drugs. And then, you know, really right at the end, I maybe had about a nine month run where, where I was kind of like, you know, at my height, you know, making that kind of money, you know, so, so I had like a little nine month run. So, you know, when they started saying 20 years, I was just like, man, I'm like, there's no way I'm not doing 20 years, you know, 20 years to life. I was like, they're crazy. Right. So. You know, the, the first thing they do is they, well, like, if you don't want to do 20 years, you can cooperate. And I'm like, well, you know, whatever. I'm like, well, what's that in, in tile? You know, because, I mean, I didn't grow up in the mafia. I don't, you know, I didn't have like this death before dishonor code. I mean, I didn't really know anything about the federal system and how it works. You know, I was really ignorant to that fact. So they're like, you know, they're talking about cooperation. And then, you know, as soon as I, you know, that, that was basically the only way you can cut your sentence in the feds by you know, putting cases on other people. And as soon as I found out, you know, what that was about, I was like, well, you know, I don't want to do that. You know, so then I was kind of left, you know, that was my two options. It was like cooperate and get less time or, you know, go to trial and face 20 to life. So I didn't like either of those options. So um, immediately, you know, I, I, I planned in my mind, I'm like, man, how can I get out of this? How can I escape? You know, what can I do? So, um, I immediately started, uh, you know, watching shows like shows I'd seen before, but like, you know, like America's most wanted. And, um, you know, I knew about these shows. They were very popular in the eighties and like Mm -hmm. unsolved mysteries. So, you know, I started kind of doing like a deep dive into these shows and, and and watching and kind of trying to learn, like, you know, how did they chase fugitives? You know, how, how did they catch them? You know? And then at the same time, um, I already had fake IDs because I used to go to all the colleges and to get in the bars, we would get fake IDs made. These were like, you know, only fake IDs that would, you know, stand up, you know, for like bouncers when it was dark, you know, so it wasn't right, like they yeah. would stand up under law enforcement scrutiny, but, um, you know, I had a couple of fake IDs, so I already knew about fake IDs. So then I started thinking like, well, how can I get better fake IDs? How can I get fake IDs, you know, or, or IDs in different people's names that'll stand up to the scrutiny of law enforcement, you know, if, if I'm going to be this fugitive on the run. So um, I started researching. I started getting these. Uh, they had some companies back then called like Loom Panics Unlimited and Palatin Press. Like they were, you know, none, known as like underground books. Yeah, and, this is uh, before before the internet, really. Yeah, I mean, before the yeah. internet. Yeah. So these are like, uh, you know, subversive books or whatever. Like one of the most famous books that these companies sold was like the Anarchist Cookbook, you know, mm-hmm. which, which tells you how to like make meth, you know. So um, they had all these books and I found all these books like uh, Reborn in the USA, Paper Tripping, One, Two and Three, Understanding USI, USA uh, Identifying Documents. So I, I ordered, there's like 25 of these books. So I ordered all these books and I started reading them. And basically um, through that, I, I found out how to get, you know, IDs and other people's names, like what they, they call it paper tripping. So I found out how to paper trip. So um, as soon as I had this knowledge and I knew that I knew I didn't want to cooperate, 
I knew that I didn't want to face 20 to life. And um, I had a little bit of money stash, not, not a lot, but um, I had a little bit of money. So, you know, I figured I would be good and be able to hide out, you know, for about six months. You know, um, how, how, I, much I formed, is, how much is a little bit of money? Like how much did you have? I had about 20 grand. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, back then that would go a lot farther than today for sure. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, of course. I, I you know, it was, it was about, uh, you know, I figured like six months it would, it would help me out for about six months and then I would have to find some other means of income. But um, yeah. And, and I knew too, right. When you become a fugitive, when you take off, it's like those first, you know, cause most people get caught right away. So it's those first couple of months. It's those first two, three, four, five, six months you know, when people get caught. And if you get through that, then, you know, you might be able to last a little longer. But, um, you know, because by then, you know, six months are going to move on to the next fugitive. They're going to move on to the next case. You know, they kind of forget you. Or at least that was my thinking. So, you know, I, I had all this already in my mind. But, uh, you know, another thing I did is like I wanted to throw them off the trail. So I was like, what can I do to throw them off the trail? Mm-hmm. And so I remember, you know, I was, we were in Northern Virginia and um, I used to read the paper. I was a big sports fan. So I would read the, the Washington Post. We got it. I would read it every day and I would flip right to the sports section. Well, right before the sports section is the metro section. So a lot of times, you know, the metro section headline might catch my eye. And every now and then in the metro section, you would see like, you know, person commits suicide, you know, at Great Falls National Park you know, by jumping into the Potomac river. So like through my teenagers, I'd seen this a lot, man, you know, I mean, I'd seen this probably like 10, 15 times, you know, headline Mm -hmm. on the Metro. So that stuck in my mind. And I was like, you know what, you know, when I was planning all this, I was like, and like, I planned all this, it wasn't long. I planned all this maybe like two months, you know, from maybe like, like August until I took off in October. So, uh, you know, the feds got involved in August and then, you know, I took off in October. So I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to fake my suicide. So I made this whole elaborate ruse and um, I went down and I took my car to Great Falls National Park, parked in the parking lot. I put a suicide note on the, uh, you know, taped it to the dash. And then uh, I went down and walked on a trail and then like on a trail, you know, I went off the trail in the area you're not supposed to go like on the rocks. And then it's like the Potomac River. And in this area in the Potomac River, it's like class five rapids and there's like a lot of rocks. So it's like, you know, if you jump in the water, you know, you can't swim. You're just going to be like smashed into the rocks, you know. So um, that was my idea. So I I staged it. I I put all my stuff there and, uh, you know, I hung out. I had like a vodka bottle, you know, some cigarettes, my wallet, ID, some money in the wallet. And uh, I waited till some people like walked by because a lot of people hiked the trail. And as soon as I saw, you know, some people, I jumped out and I said, my friend, he jumped, he jumped. And then, you know, I took off and I had somebody meet me and, and take me to the airport and I flew to LA. So, um, you know, and then I kind of monitored the, the progress as I went to LA and I saw like when it first came out in the, in the newspaper, the Washington post. So, so did you leave, did you leave identity, like identification back there that it was you that yeah yeah yeah, like, yeah. Okay. I, i'd staged it yeah i left my wallet with my id and everything so how'd you get on so, i guess back then did you need a, your id to get on a plane or i guess you had other fake no IDs no then? no yeah i had fake ids but you didn't need okay. your id back then you know you could go back then you could go right this is like uh pre-911 so you could go like right mm-hmm. to the airport and you could say like you could pay cash and give them john smith that's right yeah and just walk right through and um 
and they had metal detectors, but that's all they had. They just had metal detectors, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it was a lot different world, you know? So, um, yeah, I went, I flew one way to LA and then, uh, you know, I was stayed right in Hollywood and, uh, I was checking, you know, back then they had newsstands. So I would go to the newsstand every day because, you know, the big newsstand has papers from all the big cities. So I would check the Washington post every day. And at first I was like, man, my, my ruse worked because they said, you know, like, like Fair, Fairfax LSD kingpin, you know, commit suicide, you know? And I was like, man, I was like, I got him. you know, like I'm so smart, you know, uh, you know, I thought I was brilliant or whatever, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm mission impossible or something like that, you know, <laughs> criminal mastermind, whatever. But then, um, I kept reading the papers and after two weeks, the prosecutors, you know, there was a headline in the papers where the prosecutors said, uh, you know, they basically called my suicide. They said it was a fraud. You know, they said it was a hoax. They said, um, because the U S park rangers, they dragged the river, you know, for, for two weeks. And, um, you know, there was a dam, like where I staged it, there was a dam and they dragged the river for two weeks and they never found a body. So they declared my suicide a hoax. So then I realized that, uh, I messed up, right? I staged my suicide on the wrong side of the dam. So that was like one, that was like one fact that just eluded me, you know, because, uh, you know, I had everything right, but that's the one thing I didn't catch from the articles that, you know, if you wanted your body to wash out to the Atlantic ocean, you had to stage your suicide on the other side of the dam. So, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, you know, without, you know, I was a kid, you know, I was hey, two months of planning. Yeah. It's, I mean, I was smoking lots of weed, you know, for, I just forgot that one detail, but you know. So what, what happens then? You're, you're in California. You're, I mean, you're now a fugitive from the law. Uh, you got like $20,000 in your pocket. Eventually you're going to have to work again. You, you made it two years. So obviously you made it pa past those initial few uh, crucial months that you were talking about. So take, take us through that timeline, that two year timeline. Yeah. So after two, after six months, I, I kind of ran out of money. Um, you know, I was in Hollywood, man, I was partying, you know, trying to get girls, stuff like that. So, uh, like after six months I ran out of money and, um, I don't know. I tried to get some jobs, you know, I had some fake IDs, but I don't know. I don't think the job market was very good. I, I you know, I went to some, I remember going to interviews and it seemed like there was like hundreds of people going to interviews. So I never got a job. So, um, I tried though. So eventually I was like, well, whatever. Uh, I went back to Texas, you know, I needed, I need some income. I, I needed a, uh, you know, way to make money. So I went back to Texas. I hooked up, um, with my Mexican weed supplier you know, he didn't even know I was busted. He was just like, Oh, where you been for six months? I was like, Oh, I was just laying low. So I just went back there and, um, I, I started getting weed from him and I was actually selling weed in Dallas, Texas area. Um, to mostly like, uh, like restaurant people, you know, like waiters, waitresses, mm -hmm. cooks, you know, I, I, I befriended this one guy. He was a cook at a restaurant and, uh, moved in with him and we had like a little party apartment. And I, I would sell weed to all the uh, all the waiters and waitresses. And um, but the only thing in Texas, I mean, back then the the brick pot, you know, we're we're talking like ninety one, ninety two. The brick pot in Texas was like super plentiful because it was all coming up, you know, across the border from Mexico. That was like the main entry point. So the weed was plentiful, so you really couldn't make that much money, man. You couldn't, you know. So I was like barely surviving. So then my, the the cook that I was living with. He was from St. Louis. 
So, you know, eventually he was like, Hey man, I'm going to go up, you know, I'm going to go home for the weekend, you know, see my parents and stuff, you know, party with my high school friends. He's like, you know, you want to come. And I was like, I was like, man, you know, cause I knew before that's how I made money by, you know, I would get weed from one place and smuggle it to another place where it was more valuable. So I started asking, I'm like, you know, how much can you sell, you know, pounds up there for, you know, uh, you know, people that will buy it. And he was like, yeah, I think so, man. I know some people. So, you know, I went to my, uh, Mexican guy, I got him to front me like 20 pounds and, and we drove it up there. And that first time, I don't even think I sold, uh, I didn't even sell the whole 20 pounds. You know, I maybe sold, you know, about three fourths of it, but I made some connections and then that was like my new thing. I started running, uh, you know, loads of weed from Dallas up to St. Louis. And then eventually in St. Louis, I got hooked up, um, with some college kids, you know, up in Mizzou, that's Columbia or, uh, you know, Missouri state up in Columbia. Mm -hmm. And like, they were moving even more weed up there. And, you know, at this time, you know, I say college kids, but you know, at this time I'm like, I'm like 21, you know, so I'm, I'm basically college age too. So, um, and that was kind of my new thing. And I started doing that for about 18 months. Uh, you know, started getting my mojo back, started kind of, you know, you know, partying more, hanging out with people, you know, having girlfriends, you know, feeling like I'm getting my life, even though I'm living as a fugitive and I got fake IDs, and nobody knows my, my real name or that I'm wanted or anything like that. And you know, this I'm, whole I'm, time, are you on the, the, U.S. Marshals top 15. Yeah, yeah. Most I'm, on the, I'm on the tip top 15 most wanted list this whole time, which I, I didn't even know none of that until I got caught. I didn't, I didn't know I was top huh. 15 U.S. Marshals list. I had no idea. So, um, yeah, eventually I do this, but you know, I mean, this is the height of the war on drugs. You know, this is like 91 to 93. So, this was when they viewed cannabis like heroin. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, eventually I got caught. You know, I got, I got busted. On a weed charge in Missouri, they matched up my prints and they were like, oh, you know, we got this guy. And then, uh, you know, they released me on the initial charge because they didn't know who I was. But then they found out who I was. And then the fugitive, uh, you know, like the regional U.S. Marshals Fusional Task Force came and, you know, started busting in doors. Everybody I knew. And eventually somebody told them where I was and they, they came and busted out my door and got me. And um, this was 93 and they uh, extra me extradited me back to Virginia and sentenced me to 25 years. Wow. Um, so b before we leave, leave the, the life as a fugitive, um, what actually Re Amy told me months ago, or maybe even longer than that to, uh, to get you on the show. But then I saw you on Fox news talking about the, the Brian laundry, uh, you know, him being a fugitive now what he's doing. So I want to get your opinion on that. Uh, he's, he's been a fugitive for what, for a, two months, 16, or, uh, I guess maybe eight, maybe six weeks. So yeah, yeah maybe a month and a half. Yeah. 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 So he, I think, but, uh, different world today, but, uh, what, what do you think? Do you think he can, if he is, maybe he's not alive. I, I don't know who knows, but do you think he's alive? Yeah, still? I, I think he's hiding, man. I think like I, I've, I've maintained the whole time that I think he's close to home. So he's in their Florida and neighboring state because I mean, the main thing with being a fugitive, the main thing why most people get caught is because they're desperate because they don't have any resources. So they have to resort to crime. And when you're resorting to crime on a daily basis, your chances of getting caught by law enforcement increase dramatically. So um, I believe he's close to home. I believe, uh, you know, 
he, he's close to home because of resources, you know, because of his parents, you know, there was that three, four, five days, you know, where he came back and, you know, he probably broke down and told his parents, you know, whatever happened, whatever didn't happen. I mean, I don't, I don't know that he deserves mm-hmm. his day in court, just like anybody else, you know, mm-hmm. all I can say is, you know, if he did hurt that girl, he, he deserves everything he has coming to him and more, but, um, you know, whatever happened, happened, you know, and, and parents are going to love their kids, you know, whatever happened. And he could have spun it any way he wanted to. And of course, his parents are going to believe him. So I believe they had time, you know, to make plans and have contingencies and, uh, you know, figure out like what he was going to do, you know, whatever the plan was. They had time to make a plan. So they had time to plan out how they're going to get him resources to run stuff through liaisons. You know, so, um, yeah, I believe he's holed up in an apartment somewhere, man. I don't know, maybe, uh, you know, Florida, you know, Louisiana, you know, one of those neighboring states, man, you know, yeah. with, with a friend or a relative, you know, they probably, probably sent him somewhere and, um, and his parents are, are indirectly helping him, you know, funneling him resources, you know, while, why he either, you know, waits for this to all die down, which I don't know if it's going to die down. I mean, this is, it's a crazy story in the, in the news cycle right now. It seems like, you know, er- everybody is raptured by this whole story, you know, inflaming a lot of passions and stuff like that and a lot of interest. But um, also, you know, if, if he's going to stay a fugitive, I mean, he's going to have to get, you know, some legitimate ID, you know, he's going to have to alter his appearance, you know, he, he's going to have to do something. So maybe that's all stuff that he's thinking about. But, you know, like, like I said, like I said on Fox News, I mean, whatever, man, if you did it, if you didn't do it, I mean, just just I mean, turn yourself in, man, face the music, because I can tell you, man, life is a fugitive. I mean, even though, you know, I kind of felt like I got my life back and I was selling drugs again. I mean, you know, looking back, I mean, it's a terrible mental burden. I mean, that whole time when I was a fugitive, I was smoking weed from morning to night. You know, I was every afternoon I was drinking alcohol you know, getting wasted. I was just basically, you know, uh, you know, like dampening, you know, myself because it's such a tremendous mental burden. And, and it was a mental burden for me. And like I say, I didn't know I was top 15 U S marshals list, but you know, I know the mental burden that I was facing that I endured and the scrutiny on my case is nothing like his. Yeah. So I can't even imagine the mental burden that he's facing right now. Yeah, it's. I mean, he's got a, the anxiety and and paranoia. Yeah, paranoid. Oh, yeah. Man. So, I mean, who knows? I mean, he could be abusing drugs. Who knows what he's doing? I don't know. Unless maybe he's in a drill and junkie or a psychopath, and it's probably all cool. You know, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Did Did you deal with that? I mean, did you were, did you deal with any paranoia when you were on the run? Yeah. No. Especially the first six months. Yeah. The first six months. I mean, paranoia, anxiety. You know, I thought the feds were around every corner. You know, I was like really cautious. You know, I thought they were going to like bust in and get me at any time. I mean, it took it took me like a good six months to kind of figure like, you know, like I'm okay. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, they're, they're not, uh, you know, they're, they're not around the corner. You know, there's no uh, Sherlock Holmes on the course. I mean, because basically, you know, law enforcement nowadays and even back then, you know, throughout this war on drugs era, I mean, they're, they're not like detectives or like inspectors Every, everything they get is through informants you know so i mean you know the, these guys don't have like those sherlock holmes type of skills 
Mm-hmm. You know, like w- when you look at, you know, our inspector Crusoe or anything like that, you know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it's just, that's not how law enforcement is today. It's just, you know, people tell. So, you know, but I, I, I was, I was very, uh, I cut off contact with everybody I knew previously, you know, for my previous life, I didn't have contact with anybody, you know, um, and the people, like I said, uh, the Mexican uh, smuggler, you know, he didn't even know anything about my cave. So, you know, and he didn't know anybody I knew anyhow. So, you know, that, that that's like one of the only people I felt safe, you know, but like, I, I didn't call my mom. I didn't call my dad. I didn't call my brother, my sister, no old girlfriends, you know, like I was basically dead to everybody. All right, guys, I want to take a quick break in the show today to tell you about I trust capital. If you're someone who maybe has a, you know, an old 401k that you moved into an IRA somewhere when you left a job, you just have the money sitting there. What do you do with it? Try to invest in stocks, whatever other bull crap out there. What if you could invest that money in crypto? Invest it in physical gold and silver? Well, you can do that with iTrust Capital. But with iTrust Capital, you have the tax benefits of an IRA while trading in crypto assets. And on top of that, like I said, you can also have access to buying physical gold and silver into your account. It's it's amazing. If you sign up using promo code LIONS, at iTrust Capital, you'll get the first month free. Now, iTrust Capital is safe and secure. Uh, They are backed by Coinbase Custody and Curve uh, to secure clients' digital assets. And they have $320 million of insurance to make sure your funds are safe and secure. On top of that, they are trusted. They have 1,300 reviews on Trustpilot and they are 100% transparent in their fees, which you know I can't really say that about all other IRA providers. Now, whether you're holding your assets long-term or you want to buy and sell with the market, iTrust Capital's IRA gives your account or provides the account the lowest transaction fees for buying Bitcoin or, or other digital currencies. As an iTrust client, you'll be able to log into your account, make trades 24-7, trades execute in real time, and settle in seconds. Um, They offer more cryptocurrencies than any other crypto IRA provider out there, and they're adding more all the time. Go to itrustcapital.com, use promo code LIONS for your first month free. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, So to to go from that, to go from life on the run over two years, and then you're in prison, your early 20s, you're facing 20 years. You ended up serving about 21 years in prison, right? But at the time, you thought you could have been in, in longer than that, right? So with that out ahead of you, at the beginning of, of your time in prison, what was, I mean, what was your mindset? What was your mental state like? I mean, how were you dealing with that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, first, when I first went to prison, I mean, I was extremely cautious, you know? I mean, I was, I, I was scared. I didn't know what to face. I, I mean, you see all the movies, you know what I'm saying? And, and even though the law enforcement, like the law enforcement, you know, they play that up. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, like Big Bubba is going to be your celly. You know, they play on those stereotypes, especially as a, as a young white kid. I mean, law enforcement is really bad. I mean, it's, it's awful the things that they say to people, you know, and most of the time they say these things to people because they want you to cooperate or they want you to snitch. So, I mean, it's just terrible that the way that the whole criminal justice system is set up and the way it plays out. But yeah, when I went to prison, I moved scared. And, and plus, like, look, when I went to prison, 
I mean, um, I was like that first wave of, of marijuana LSD guys. Like I was that first wave when the feds went out into the suburbs before that, like when they started the federal sentencing guidelines and mandatory minimums and, you know, the modern war on drugs, it was 1988. They were going after all the crack dealers, all the inner city guys. So when I went in federal prison, it was uh, 75% black. So, you know, I grew up in California. So, you know, I, I grew up a little bit multicultural, but still, I mean, it, it, it was a shock, you know, as, as, as a white kid going in, you know, to like, you know, a prison and it's 75% black and it's, you know, like all, you know, a lot of gang bangers, you know, drug lords, you know, and this was like the, uh, this was like the beginning of the age of gangster rap. So like everybody kind of carried it like that. I mean, so yeah, it, it was scary, you know, but. I mean, I, I had to adjust, you know, I, I, I had to, uh, that's the one thing with prison, man. Like, even if you're scared, you can't, you can't show that you're scared, man. They'll eat you up. And, and, and really when it comes down to it, it's not, it's not even the other races that'll eat you up. It's your own people. Your own race will eat you up and exploit you. I mean, that's, that's how it is. You know, the worst thing, you know, it's hap you know, that your own race will do it to you. So yeah, man, I, I had to, uh, I had to grow up and I had to get tough, you know, real quick. Cause, uh, you know, before prison, I, I was probably, I mean, I was probably entitled to a certain extent, you know, I was probably spoiled to a certain extent. And, uh, you know, I, I was, I was a little kid, you know, who, who had grown up, you know, uh, kind of sheltered, you know, in, in a way in the suburbs, you know, mm -hmm. so, um, and like I say, my parents were rich, but you know, they were, they were like middle-class, you know, upper middle-class, you know? So, I mean, we didn't, we didn't want for anything, you know, I, I had, uh, you know, I had a good all American upbringing. So, you know, being thrown into that world in, in prison was culture shock for me. And I, I had to grow up real quick because, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have friends or relatives that were in prison. You know, I didn't, I didn't grow up in that culture you know, where a culture of crime or culture of the streets or, you know, like the mafia or the Dixie mafia or drug lords where, you know, that was, you know, all that stuff was happening and people were getting killed or, you know, people were going to prison. You know, I, I grew up in, in the suburbs, you know, where, you know, and in the college scene where everybody was just partying, you know, getting high and stuff. And um, everybody was just expected to go party for four years and then move on with their life, you know, and get a career or whatever. So that's what was expected of me. That's the world I grew up in. So when I went in there, yeah, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a complete, um, like, one eighty for me. I was like, man, I was like, where am I at? You know. So, so I had to like grow up like really fast. Like it was, it was like either grow up and become a man, or you know, something really bad can happen to you. You know, so I had to like, you know, I had to like whatever they call it, like, you know, man up or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and like you say, you know, people challenge you, people try you and, uh, you know, you got to fight. That's all you can do. You know, you just got to fight and you got to hope it doesn't turn into some serious beef where somebody wants to stab you or something. But I mean, you have to defend yourself. You got to stand up for yourself because if you don't, people will walk all over you and worse. So. I mean, that, that's kind of, you know, how it went. And luckily, I would say luckily, too. I mean, uh, I mean, at that time, I was like six, you know, I was six, I'm, I'm six one. But at that time, I was probably like 185, you know, so as I hit the weights, you know, I put on some muscle. Plus, um, I was always a good athlete growing up. So I started playing sports and, uh, 
you know, it's weird, like in an alpha male world, like if you're good at sports, I mean, people kind of look up to you, you know, in a way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think another, another two things that really helped me is, um, you know, I got Italian last name and I was on the East coast. So a lot of the mafia guys gravitated to me because of the Italian heritage. And another thing that helped me was, um, I grew up in California and even though I was on prison on the East coast, like wherever you're from, those are like your homeboys. And a lot of my homeboys were like the Mexican gangbangers, like the Sereños, because they were like the only dudes from California. And maybe there was only like four or five of them, but those dudes had the reputation of basically being like the toughest, most vicious dudes on the yard. So I come in, I'm only 22, you know, I got 25 years. Uh, you know, immediately the mafia guys are coming to me because of my Italian last name. And immediately the Mexican Sereno gangbangers are coming to me because I grew up in California. Because I tell people like, where are you from? You know, I'm from California. Mm -hmm. So I'm immediately being associated with these two different groups that get a lot of respect in prison. You know, and then I got 25 years too. So people are like, well, I guess, you know, he must be somebody. He got 25 years. You know, he's not in here on, uh, you know, some petty you know, charge. And, um, then, like I say, right when I got there, I, I started playing sports and I was good at sports. So, you know, I, I had a pretty, uh, you know, besides some fights, you know, I had to fight every now and then, but besides some fights, I had a pretty easy adjustment. So this is kind of an interesting question to ask because people don't consider, you know, good things happening to people in prison, but you know, a lot of people turn their life around and find their passion in prison. And I, th I think that's the case for, for you. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but you started writing when you were in prison, but I'm curious, like what, what's the, what would be the best thing that happened to you? You know, something that really changed your perspective, changed your life, changed your, you know, changed your path while you were in prison. Yeah, I, w I would say, I mean, just, Cause like when you go to prison, man, it's like everything you were before is, is kind of stripped down. Like you're stripped down to nothing, you know? Cause I mean, everybody got to wear khakis, you know, everybody got to wear, you know, gray sweatsuits, you know, money doesn't really matter. You know, it's, it's, it's who you are on the inside. It's like, you know, your ideals and your ethics and your word, you know, like they, they got a saying in there. Like they say in prison, like the only two things you got is your word and your balls. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, so really just going to prison, um, especially as a young kid, I mean, I just, I grew to be a man in prison. And like I say, I mean, yes, it was harsh conditions and yes, there's like a twisted sense of ideals and yes, some of the ideals that help you survive in there are, are not suited to help you survive in the world. But, you know, I did, I did, I, I kind of thrived, you know, I, I kind of fell in you know, to the role, but you know, at, at the same time, it's like, you got to put a, you got to put this mask on, man. Like every day when you wake up, you got to put this mask on. Cause you just gotta, you gotta project like, you know, don't mess with me. You know, I'm dangerous. You know, if, if you, if you, uh, you know, if you mess with me, like I'll tear your head off. So, you know, you kind of got to put this mask on and, and play this role you know, and then if somebody does try you, you know, then you gotta, you know, you gotta, you know, go full force, you know, or, or, you know, like I'm saying, it could be, be your life or, or worse. But, uh, yeah, I just think, uh, you know, the biggest thing for me was, um, you know, just becoming a man, you know, I became a man, you know, behind those fences. And, 
you know, once I became a man and I was secure with myself as a man, then I started to look in for like, what can I do for my future? Mm-hmm. You know, so once, you know, first it was like I had to get my security in there to make sure I was safe. I felt safe. So then once I felt safe, then I was like, okay, yeah, I got all this time, but what can I start doing now? You know, that's going to help me be successful when I get out. And that's when I got into the college classes, the writing, you know, doing all the books and uh, getting, you know, the college degrees. And and that was all kind of like a setup for when I did touch down in 2015, I was ready for the world. You know, I had some skills, uh, you know, I had some accolades. I had some recognition for my writing. I had a body of work. I had a network of support you know, contacts that I built up with editors. So then when I got out, you know, I didn't, I didn't have to work at McDonald's. You know, mm-hmm. I started writing articles for Vice. I was doing features for Penthouse. So, you know, I made, I made a way. I created a way for me. So when I got out, you know, I, I had a life. So, so you made the, how did you make those contacts while you were in prison? Did you write, were you writing articles while you were still incarcerated or? No, I started. So, how I did that was, um, you know, I used to get a ton of magazines mm-hmm. and like on all the magazines, they have a masthead and they usually have the address, like the, you know, the publication headquarters. And they say like the editor, assistant editor, who's in charge of different sections. So what I did is um, first I took some uh, journalism courses, like through Penn State and University of Iowa. And then I, I just started writing, man, to the people. Like I, I would get the magazine and I would see stuff. And I'm like, man, I could, I, w- I could write stuff for this place. And I would start writing to editors, like snail mail. And like, mm-hmm. I just didn't write one letter. Like I would write like hundreds of letters. Like dudes in prison thought I was crazy. I was the type of dude, I would go to the mailbox and I would have like a hundred letters. Wow. And I would like, and I would do this like, you know, once or twice a month. And so that's how I did it, man. What were you writing? What were you writing? Were you writing about stories or were you, what were you writing? I was writing, um, the first big success I had was uh, writing about prison basketball. Okay. So I was writing stories about like prison basketball, like how, what was going on, you know, interviewing different guys that were really, really good. Like the the superstars in prison, interviewing them, telling their stories. So that's my was my first big success. And then my second big success was uh, I started writing about the street legends. I started interviewing, you know, the guys that were kind of lionized in the lyrical lore of hip hop, you know, because like gangster rap, like 95 gangster rap is huge. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm here and, you know, um, I play basketball. So, you know, I, and I, I grew up on hip hop, too. You know, I was a big NWA fan. So, you know, I was like one of the white dudes that would be accepted, like in the black TV room. And I would, you know, we back then we would listen to like MTV raps and later BET. And you would hear these, you know, all these rappers, 50 Cent, Jay-Z, all these other guys. And they would talk about like the guys, you know, from their neighborhoods. And um, like then, you know, I would hear the talk in there. Like the dudes be like, oh, yeah, he's on uh, A Block. And I'd be like, what? That dude's here? You know, and then, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and that's how I got the eye to start writing about him. Because at first, you know, when I first got in, like I was running a bunch of Colombian drug wars, around a mafia shows. You know, I'd, I'd call my mom and I'd be like, oh, find me a book on this dude. Find me a book or print me, a, you know, send me some magazines or whatever. But then when it got to the African-American dudes, I would call my mom. You know, they're, they're being lauded in hip hop and lionizing hip hop. But I call my mom and she's like, there's no books on these guys. So then that's where I got the idea. I'm like, man, I'm going to write the books on these guys. Mm. So I was already doing some journalism then. And then, uh, you know, so I started writing. I started interviewing these guys. 
And that's what I would just send it out, man, in mails. And eventually, you know, uh, with like email and stuff, you know, I would get my, um, she was my girlfriend and then, you know, we got married in prison and now she's my wife. You know, she's basically like my right hand for my publishing house. She would, you know, take my stuff that I typed on a prison typewriter, my interview article, she would scan it and she would email it to all these different publishers. And, uh, you know, that's how I started, you know, building up contacts. That's an incredible story. So did you, you know, kind of getting to, uh, the white boy documentary, did you, were you in prison with, uh, Richard Worshey Jr.? I was never locked up with him, but I started writing him around 2005. So, you know, I was in, I was in a couple of federal prisons in West Virginia and there was a lot of Detroit guys. So I had already been writing a lot about like the New York and DC street legends. So when I was in West Virginia around a lot of Detroit dudes, they were talking about this guy, white boy, Rick and white boy, Rick. I was like, who's this dude, white boy, Rick, this white kid who supposedly ran the black underworld. Right. And I was like, this is crazy. And I really identified with him because we were like around the same age. We both kind of got busted young and we both got like a shitload of time, you know, even though he was a cocaine dealer and I I was like a weed and psychedelics, you know, he still, he was like a nonviolent dude. So I kind of, there were some similarities and I kind of identified with him. So I started writing him. He was in a different prison. You know, I'd have my wife write him and she would like relay the red messages between us. And at first I, I wanted to write his story for like my street legend series, you know, the book street legends I had out with all these gangsters, which were kind of, uh, we're kind of, I write about these dudes like Billy, the kid or Jesse James type figures, you know? And, um, and he was writing me back and, and the, he was telling me this totally different story, hmm. you know, like, uh, he was like, no, I was an informant, you know, I, I was, I was, I was set up, you know, uh, you know, it's all corrupt cops. And I was like, I was like, you know, this doesn't fit into like the story that I want to write, you know? So it took me, it took me a couple of years at first, you know, to figure out like, how am I going to write this dude's story? You know, but then the longer I was in prison and the older I got and the wiser I got, you know, about the system and everything that was happening, you know, and then like the, the racial injustice started coming into it, you know, the systematic oppression you know, the, the targeting of minorities. And I started seeing the war on drugs and law enforcement for what it really was. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of I, I kind of started writing different. You know, where first I, w- I was writing, you know, like about the mythology and the legends of these guys as Billy the Kid type figures. You know, then I started looking at, you know, like 10 years in, after I'd been writing for about five or six years, I started looking at it more like from a criminal justice reform, you know, or advocacy type of mind frame. And then when I started doing that, then I started seeing, I started, I'm like, okay, Rick, I can write about your story now. You know, you're like a victim of the war on drugs, you know, you know what they did to you, you know, was crazy. What are they doing? Using a 14 year old kid as an informant. That's insane. insane. That's like against all ethics and boundaries, you know, but you know, first when I was younger, you know, being in prison, like, Oh, it's like informant. Like, no, you don't even want to be around that. informant. informant. That's like a, that's like a, uh, you know, that's like a, a dirty word in there. That's like, you don't want to be branded as informant. You don't even want to be branded. You know, you don't even want to be around somebody who's considered a snitch or informant. So, you know, so it took me, you know, a couple years, you know, or, you know, probably like a decade for me to grow out of the mentalities, but I kept in touch with him because I was always intrigued by his story. And um, then I started writing. I did some stories for like the fix, you know, vice, vice news while I was in, you know, about the injustice of his case. And uh, then when I got out, that kind of led to the, uh, you know, that led to the uh, movie because I met I met Sean Reck 
transition studios and um i pitched him the idea and he was looking for a film he'd just done his first film uh his first feature doc murder in the park was on showtime and he was looking for his next film and um you know he knew that the movie white boy rick movie was uh you know about to be made so you know he was like man he was like you got access to all this i was like damn he's like we can you know base it off all your writings i'm like yeah mm -hmm. And so, so, you know, we did it. He kind of took me under his wing. I, I learned a lot from him. He taught me a lot. You know, he was a nine time Emmy winning, uh, you know, filmmaker in Ohio, regional Emmys, but he's won nine Emmys for all the, he did a bunch of crime stopper TV shows, like 200. That's kind of how he cut his teeth. And, um, yeah, he kind of took me under his wing, you know, like I wasn't even out like a year, maybe 18 months when I met him and I brought this story to him and he took me under his wing. And, and that was the main thing I said, I said, look, uh, I said, I can, we, I can bring you everything you need for the story, but I go, I want you to teach me how to make films. I knew how to make, I knew how to tell a story. I knew how to write, mm -hmm. but you know, I needed to learn how to make films because that's what I wanted to do. To me, that was the next evolution, you know, in, as a writer, you know, you kind of, you know, you kind of go from journalist, you know, to book writer, you know, to documentarian to, you know, I, I see like my next step after documentaries is, you know, I want to do like feature films, like narratives you know, like wow. big budget, you know, indie. So, yeah. you know, I kind of see it's, it's, I, you know, I don't mind, I don't got to jump right to the end. You know, I can take the steps and, and learn everything I need to learn. That's, that's incredible. So you were speaking of the, the white boy Rick movie and I was confused at first because yeah, I saw the, the movie with, you know, Matthew McConaughey first before I saw your documentary is, did they get the story, you know, relatively right from a, you know, a movie standpoint or did they get the I don't know, you know, you know, movie. movies, man, movies, it's always, they got this, uh, certain formula, you know, so, um, yeah, they, they gotta, they have, they gotta mix, have the love interest. They gotta yeah, have, you know, they, 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 they kind of mix it up, you know, they kind of mm. move the stuff around. I, I don't know. I thought the movie could have been a lot better. And I thought the movie, you know, they got Matthew McConaughey. So they really got to feature him as the dad. So mm. I, I just think it could have been more like a, uh, victim of the drug war story. I mean, I like the movie. I mean, it looks good. It's cool. You know, they got some good acting. I just felt like, um, you know, they kind of scrunched up the story, you know, to fit the movie format. And uh, it just could have been so much more. And they didn't go down a lot of the corruption rabbit holes like we did in the doc. So I just think, you know, everybody tells me that the doc is a lot better. And uh, I just think that the doc is, uh, you know, shows a more, you know, thorough view of what really happened yeah you know where, the, where i think the movie just bypasses a lot of stuff i mean he, he's he's a victim of the war on drugs and the movie did not paint that the hollywood movie did not paint that at all mm -hmm. yeah the, the doc i mean it's one of the best documentaries i've seen the interviews are are, are incredible um yeah you know interviewing the i forget the one guy's name who he was he was a hired hitman um, yeah, Nate Booncraft, you know, Nate Booncraft, yeah. Yeah, and, and throughout the documentary, it looks like he's still in prison, and then, then he, yeah, he, yeah. you see him no, walk out. He's like, he's, we, yeah, we yeah. did that on purpose. That was We wanted to do that. That was Sean yeah. Rex's idea. You know, he came up with that. I actually, I, I, you know, I was there for all the interviews. I actually worked the side camera on that interview. So, yeah. you know, not only did I write and produce, but I, I, I did some of the camera stuff too. You know, I just filled in where, you know, wherever necessary, but you know, it was cool. He brought me to all the shoots, you know, like I say, and then a lot of times, Sean, 
like, uh, you know, he would, he would like sit in the director's chair and ask all the questions. And then like the last couple minutes, you know, before we broke, he might let me sit in the chair for like, you know, three, four, five minutes and ask some questions, you know, like at the end of the That's set awesome. or the end of the interview. So yeah, yeah. He really, uh, yeah, he really all went all out, man. And, and, and helped me and taught me a lot. You know, I, I'm, uh, forever indebted to him for that. That's awesome, man. I'm, I look forward to see, uh, see what's coming for you next in your career. Um, we're out of time here, but uh, I want you to, I mean, plug white boy, Rick or plug white boy, the documentary on Netflix. Again, tell people, tell people again, why they should, should watch it. Maybe your favorite thing about it, something like that. And then anything else you're working on, where can people find your work? Where can they follow you on social media? All that good stuff. Yeah, definitely, man. If, if you want to see, uh, a mesmerizing, crazy story about what law enforcement and and the FBI, like what lengths they're willing to go to, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, definitely watch white boy. Cause you know, people always talk about like, you know, what criminals will do to make a dollar, but you know, they don't talk about like what law enforcement will do to make a case and, and like what they did in, in Richard Worshi's case, man. And that whole situation, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, they basically like prostituted a 14 year old kid. And then when they were done with him, they just kicked him to the curb. And then when he started complaining about it, they gave him a life sentence. I mean, it's mm-hmm. crazy and just buried him. So I'm saying, man, if you want to see like what police corruption is really about, especially in Detroit, you know, watch white boy, watch white boy. And, uh, yeah. Cause stories like this need to be told, man. Cause this type of stuff is, is happening all the time, especially throughout this whole war on drugs. And it's just been, you know, swept under the rug, but you know, this story kind of exposes it. It's not the only story. I mean, and, and to say the only reason, you know, a lot of people care about this story is because he's white, you know, this stuff is happening to minorities every day still. So this is something that really needs to be looked at and really be examined so that, you know, we can move ahead and and law enforcement can do a better job. And, and, you know, the ones that are doing the wrong thing can be exposed. But yeah, if you want to check out my books, uh, you know, I got 22 books on gangsters, you know, drug lords, you know, gang bangers, prison life, all nonfiction. They're all on Amazon, but you can also go to uh, SethFerrante.com. That's my website. And if you order a book there, you know, I'll send you an autograph copy. Um, and then I got, I got a bunch of films, man. I got a bunch of films. I'm working on a, uh, you know, I got this one called Nightlife that's about to come out next year. It's about the violence in North St. Louis. I got a series I'm doing on Humboldt County, a four-part docuseries oh, wow. on Humboldt, Ga- Humboldt County about the, uh, like the OG outlaw growers that have now yeah, turned yeah. legal and the problems they're facing. And then uh, I got a, a trilogy series um, on on the, the LSD trade, you know, that goes all the way back to the 60s, all the way through the war on drugs, all the way till now. So that's kind of like my three big projects, you know, that are coming out now. That's incredible. I can't wait to see all that stuff. And we'll have to have you back on uh, down the road. Seth Ferranti, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. All right. Thanks, man. I appreciate it, John. Hope you guys enjoyed another great interview another great conversation here on finding freedom today's episode brought to you by uh, the good people nate and charlie at good morning liberty and their five day per week show where they dive into current events and uh, give you a uh, a sane take a nice filter 
on the on the news and political landscape uh, to help you to navigate uh, these turbulent times. Of course, you can subscribe to Good Morning Liberty wherever you get your podcasts. So do that today. And also brought to you by Tyler Colford, also known as Crypto Man. Uh, Tyler is a rapper. And uh, of course, you've probably heard his songs here on this show. Tyler's been a longtime supporter of us here at Lions of Liberty. And I want to uh, encourage you all to go and find his work on iHeartRadio, on Spotify, under Crypto Man, YouTube as well. Check him out, listen to his music, share his music, and thank you, Tyler, for the support. Guys, if you like what you're hearing here at Lions of Liberty, if you like these shows and uh, you don't want to miss them, I mean, like, I know, like, when I get into a podcast, there's only, there's a few podcasts that I, I don't miss an episode, but there's a lot more podcasts where I subscribe and I mi- listen to most episodes. So, with Lions of Liberty, like a lot of podcasts, but especially Lions of Liberty, because of the nature of our shows, our variety show format, and we're always bringing on different guests, uh, different interesting characters, you want to subscribe because you don't want to miss a show. You might miss an episode with someone that you really wanted to hear, and because you're not checking the feed, it's not coming to your phone, um, you're going to miss it when it's dropped. You're going to miss out being in on that initial conversation, uh, maybe happening in the Lions of Liberty Forum, which you can find on Facebook, or maybe happening in our uh, Lions Pride, our private Facebook group, or maybe over on um, Locals, which you can join, uh, become a patron there, uh, lionsofliberty.locals.com. Or if you're a a Patreon fan, uh, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash lionsofliberty and join up there. You know, we have a bunch of different levels you can join at, get access to the show, you can sponsor shows. You can even produce shows at a certain level. Of course, all the merchandise, all that stuff, you get that at certain levels too. Or if you just want to buy our t-shirts, we got some great designs. Check them out, lionsofliberty.store. Guys, it's been a great show. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I will see you all next week. In the meantime, remember to keep your head up and the fire is liberty burning. <laughs> <laughs>